All right, well, our sermon, our text, will be coming from 1 John. It is such a rich text. I will tell you that um, my wife gets tired of me. I've been, like, begging to, like, preach 1st, 3rd, and 2nd John, like, my entire ministry. And I'm finally getting a chance to uh, go through this great epistle. And, and we'll see today uh, uh, in the text We'll read the entire first chapter, then we'll exegete it. It'll only be the two verses uh, today. But um, John gives the believer so much confidence. Um, uh, there, is, there is nothing hiding in John's epistle, no apocalyptic language. It is just straightforward in what we know to be true about Christ. So uh, let us read the entire chapter first of 1 John 1. We'll read 1 through 10, and then our text will come from just the first two verses. 1 John 1, 1 through 10. It reads, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write, write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You may be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word. Thank you for this, these epistles. We pray that you might give us the strength and the ears the knowledge and wisdom to be able to navigate this great text of scripture. Give me the boldness to be able to preach your word without anything lacking. In the name of Jesus do we pray. Amen. The first, second, and third epistles of what in church history has traditionally been attributed to John, not John the Baptist, but John the Witness. John who was in the intimate circle of the three early chosen apostles out of the 12, those being Peter, James, and John. The synoptic gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, all give the same account about how John's brother was James and his father named Zebedee, who was a fisherman at Capernaum at the Sea of Galilee. This is the same John that wrote the final letter to the churches, the book of Revelation. But unlike John's gospel account or the symbolic prophetic nature of Revelation, 
These epistles are very straightforward, direct, blunt, to the point, and absolutely certain. As we just read, we see that unlike in other epistles from uh, the Apostle Paul or Peter, the author wastes no time with greetings or salutations, apologetic arguments, introductions, nothing. No. He simply starts with the truth, assumes the truth, expounds upon that truth, and ends with the truth. If there was ever a biblical model for presupposition from scripture, these epistles would definitely be it. I believe that in our present age, this is exactly what we need. We need bold, told truth. There is a false humility today that says that we can't or shouldn't impose our values, our beliefs on other people. After all, with this postmodern philosophy, it allows a space for everyone to have a truth. It's her truth, his truth, but not the truth. But see, this attitude, while cunning, is not humility at all. It is just cowardice compromise. It's bumper sticker, coexist, touchy-feely universalism. This idea denies spiritual truth, and it even denies natural truth. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the truth. And he was, is both, very God and very man. He is God, but he was also manifested in the flesh. You see, at the time of writing this epistle, which most scholars agree was between 85 to 95 AD, there was a different philosophy around called Gnosticism. A very simple understanding of this religious idea was that it held the position that anything physical was evil or impure, and anything that was spiritual was good and pure. There was even a rift between two different sides within this philosophy. So, to solve the problem of Gnosticism, they believed that there was this esoteric or hidden knowledge that either side had not yet attained. So since nothing was certain, they had to gain more knowledge or gnosis in the Greek. And they believed that through gaining more knowledge, this esoteric knowledge, they would eventually be able to determine for certain that Jesus Christ was just a spirit, a ghost. That position, that, that position was called docetism. Or the other side, if Jesus Christ was simply able to switch back and forth, but he couldn't be both at the same time. He either had to be all flesh at one time or all spirit at one time. That was called synthurianism. So I hope that adds some more greater context for this great epistle that we have the privilege to study in the coming weeks. Because not only is John writing Holy Scripture, but Scripture is declaring that Christ Jesus is the truth against all other philosophies. And that truth is that he is the eternal God, Yahweh, who came in flesh, lived among flesh, but yet he, but yet he never ceased to be God. And if he never ceased to be God, then that means that Christ was or is eternal. And if eternal... Even death could not defeat him. And if death could not defeat him, then he is that eternal life made known, true. And that's why for those who are in Christ, they can be certain 
that they have eternal life in him. That's what we hope to discuss today. How the believer has absolute confidence in eternal life. I believe John is confident and encouraging believers of the same confidence because God himself was manifested, made known in the person of Jesus Christ. And not just made known in um, types and shadows like the Old Testament, not just made known in prophecy, but was manifested tangibly as a fulfillment of what we know from the beginning. We heard him. We seen him. And we handled him. We put our hands on him. He is real in every sense of the word. He is more real than we could ever imagine. We knew the Lord through his word. He is the word. And we knew the Lord through creation declaring his glory, natural revelation. But John is saying now we actually heard him speak. We actually seen him and looked upon him and we even laid our hands on him. The Lord. That same Lord that was high and lifted up. This holy one of Israel who came to the ancient of days, this promised powerful Messiah, we had the impossible opportunity to touch him. So we'll cover just two verses today in three points. How we heard Jesus, how we seen Jesus, and how we handled Jesus. Heard, seen, handled. Let's go back up to John 1. In verse 1, excuse me, 1 John 1 and verse 1. Look at what it says here. It's very small, but it's very important. It reads, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. The opening of this letter is very similar to John, St. John, that is, 1-1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You see, this beginning that John is referring to here is not just talking about the beginning of John's witness of Jesus and his ministry. It is also not just referring to the beginning of the incarnation of Jesus into human flesh. It is hearkening all the way back to Genesis. In the beginning of all things, eternity, past, beginning here in the Greek word is arche. Not only is the word used to describe the start of something, but it is also used to describe Christ's pre-existence. He existed before all things. Therefore, it was the word, it was he who brought the beginning into existence. So there can be no question of Christ's deity, even though he was in human flesh. He is still the eternal son of God, the one that we knew from the beginning. The whole phrase from the beginning is used several times in this epistle alone. In 1 John 2, 7, he says, brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. 1 John 2, 13, I write no Uh, Excuse me, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. 1 John 2.14, I have written unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. 
1 John 2, 24. Let therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Of course, 1 John 3, 8. He that commits sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So we see that many times, but not every time, within context, John refers to that which was from the beginning. He is calling back before the testimony of the gospel in the new covenant, but he connects all of prophetic scripture in one line of truth. So we can have confidence that John, Peter, James, Paul are not just making stuff up on their own. But you can search the scriptures from the beginning and see that this is certain. It connects. It is fundamental truth that was long ago revealed. John wants you to know. He wants you to trust. He wants you to have full confidence in your belief. Not because he wrote a fancy letter or made a valid argument, but he desires for you to have confidence in the one in whom he's writing the letter about. This is echoed through John's epistles. In 1 John 2.28, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, that, which he, that, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. 1 John 3.21, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. 1 John 5.14, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That word confidence in the original language is the word parousia. It means plain, frankly, it means to have boldness. This is why throughout the epistles, the apostle continually says that we can know. Not think about, not wonder about, but we can know. Again, it goes all the way back to having an absolute certainty. And we have that certainty, that confidence in Christ, because this is holy scripture. Revelation from God, the Lord, that we have from the beginning. But if the eternal and the spiritual nature of revealed scripture wasn't enough, the apostle adds to this by pointing out the natural, the hearing, the seeing, and the handling. In the middle of verse 1, look at what he says, First John in the middle of verse 1. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. From the beginning we knew. Since Adam we heard the voice of God. Since Moses we knew the law of God. And throughout history we heard the voice of the prophets speaking on behalf of the Lord. But now the apostles, the new covenant believers, John is saying, I bear witness that the prophecy of what we heard, we heard it in person. We were there. We heard his voice declare the fulfillment of the word of God. Hearing is very important in scripture. 
In Romans 10, 14, it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Christ is the ultimate priest. And he certainly was the ultimate preacher. And if he called you, and if you heard him, you will believe. What did the apostles do? They followed. Follow me. Romans 10, 17, same chapter. So then faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and then hearing by Jesus Christ because he is the word. There's a very familiar passage in Job, Job 42, 5. Job is suffering all his sufferings and the devil sort of has this idea that he's going to make Job sin against God, but God declares that Job was righteous and you cannot thwart, you cannot accuse the brethren when God is for you. But Job does go through his suffering, but at the end of his suffering, well, towards the end of his suffering, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you with my eye. There is a richness to hearing God's word, to knowing Jesus Christ. He is the word. See, Job knew the Lord in his day of affliction. In his suffering, he came to know the Lord more deeply. But Job didn't know Messiah. The Lord, well, he eventually did. But Job didn't, at his day, know the Lord, the Messiah, the same way John and the other New Testament believers did. Let's continue in the verse. which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. We've seen and we've looked at him. This is a physical testimony. And our hands have handled. The gospel accounts reveal that John is speaking about what he has seen. He's not speaking in generalities or in figurative symbolic language. He is speaking from actual, direct, eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ, who he saw, who he touched. Hold your place in 1 John and turn over to Luke chapter 24. Jesus Christ, being the prophet that he was, predicted his death and his resurrection. But we still had those who were doubting, even within his own circle, the apostles. So much so that they fled when it came time for the persecution and the cross. Through process of time, Jesus rose again from the dead. And this is what John gives the account of. I believe he is honing in on portions of scripture like this. Look at Luke 24. Luke 24, begin at verse 36. Luke 24, verse 36. It says, And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. Now, I don't know about you, but we had never seen anybody rise from the dead. 
I mean, the most they probably heard was maybe Enoch in Genesis. He was translated. He did not see death because he pleased God. Or, or maybe Elijah in the chariot of fire took him up. But nobody had ever come back from the dead in this way. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there. I mean, think about their minds were blown. You know, I mean, the first thing you're thinking about, am I hallucinating? Am I crazy? Is this a ghost? He says, peace be unto you. See, John sees this account. He understands this account because he was there. The 12 were there. Look, look, look at verse 37. It says, but they were terrified and affrightened and supposed they had seen a spirit, a ghost. In other words, they were freaking out. We like, what? Jesus, you're here. Is he flesh? Look at verse 38. And he said unto them, why are you troubled? Come on, Jesus. I mean, asking a pretty rhetorical question here. You just popped in the middle of the living room. We didn't, you know, we weren't expecting that. He said, why are you troubled? And why do your thoughts arise in your hearts? But here's how we get to the handling. He's already there. He's in the midst of the 12. They are afraid. They don't know if they're hallucinating. They don't know if they've seen a ghost or not. They don't know if he's tangible. Is this real? Am I awake? But Jesus responds like this. He said, look, look at my hands and my feet. Look at my hands and my feet. That is, and you see that it is me. He said, look. He took it even further. He said, this is not some mental projection, some hallucination, but touch me. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones as ye see me have. No need to be afraid. I am he. Touch me. I mean, think about this. I mean, you know, Christ, you know, the, the, the biblical account of the gospel gives the account that the that the scars and the mars were still there. It was still puncture wounds that were there. So it was no question that they had seen Jesus in the flesh, this new flesh. He said, because a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, touch me. Look at verse 40. And when they had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. This is why John says, we saw him, we looked upon him, and we even handled him. With our hands, we give you this testimony. Verse 41. And while they yet believed for joy and wondered, he said unto them, have you here any meat? You got something to eat? Like, Jesus, what, like, what are you talking about? Like, you got to... I mean, you got a body. I mean, you're Jesus. You're back from the dead. What are, are you hungry? No, this is not for me. This is so you can see. So you can have the testimony that I am real. I am resurrected. I have all victory over flesh and the spirit. Death and the grave. Give me something to eat so you can see it. 
so you can see the physical process, the manifestation of what I am showing you is real. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. And he took it and he did eat before them. I would encourage you to read all of Luke 24 and the parallel gospels as well. It is so beautiful. It is so compassionate and so amazing. Jesus has risen from the dead, but knows the hearts of his people. And he comes to them almost in stages. You remember when we go further back up in Luke 24, two of, the, two of his holy angels reveal the resurrection of Jesus to the women at the empty, empty tomb. So that's already one thing, right? He's gone. The body's not there. Okay. We can probably believe that. You know, he rose from the dead but we can't confirm because it is not there, but he's not there, right? Then Christ on the road to Emmaus, he does this beautifully. He cloaks himself in some way. We have no idea, right? But he cloaks himself. They, they can't even recognize who he is from a few of the disciples who were discouraged. Then he takes his patient time and expounds the entire Old Testament and reveals him to them in bodily form. I'm patient, but I couldn't expound the whole Old Testament. But Jesus did. And he intentionally made them blind to his appearance so they wouldn't say, oh, Jesus, you're here. So now we believe. No, you're going to believe the scripture, the word. And then he revealed himself bodily. And then he has another meal with them, with all of them. He lives. He is among us again. We see it. We feel it. This is why John says, look at verse 2 of 1 John. 1 John 1 and verse 2. We see it. We feel it. We touch it. That word of life, we handled him. Verse 2 of 1 John 1, he says, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. What was manifested, John? Life. Life was manifested in all of its glory. We know Humans live. We know humans breathe. We saw it. We saw them do miracles and everything else. We know these things. These are things that we're familiar with. But we had never seen life again from the dead. Life was made manifest in Jesus Christ in many ways. There is life in the living word, which he is the word. There is the tree of life, which has been placed in heaven, and he is Lord and authority over. And remember, and remember, the tree of life represents eternal life. Because God says, don't let them eat of the tree, lest they live forever in sin. He is the bread of life, and those who eat of him will never go what? Hungry. What does that feel like? I'm always hungry, right? He is the living water, and those that drink of him will never thirst. We're walking in the neighborhood, right? And then, you know, it's just so funny. You know, my sons are like, I'm thirsty. Like, it took like five steps. But if you drink of the waters of Jesus Christ, you'll never be thirsty. 
He is life everlasting. This is the biggest one. He is life everlasting because he is eternal. And that eternal life is extended to us, the elect people of God. But based on the text, I think of the simplest form of the manifestation of life. It was the defeat of death in the grave. Think about it. One moment you're laughing with, ministering with, weeping with, breaking bread at a table with the living Lord himself. And within a week's time, he is taken from you by Jewish and Roman authority and unjustly tried, tortured, and murdered on a cross. This had, this did strike the faith of the apostles because they were nowhere to be found. They probably said within themselves, if he's the Lord of glory, then how could mere human authorities kill him? If he's the king of kings, then where is the kingdom? If this perfect, sinless, innocent man who we believe to be Messiah is dead and in the grave, Sheol, then what hope do we have? That would be the case if the story ended there. That hopelessness would be true. And instead of the manifestation of eternal life, we would have a personification of death. Because that's all they had seen. King David died. Moses died. In Adam, we all die. Death, 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 death until Jesus Christ. Thanks be to almighty God, we have the resurrection. We have the destruction of the works of the devil, and we have the victory over death in the person of Jesus Christ. This eternal life manifested, seen, known, felt, promised, and fulfilled was all in Christ. Turn back over to Luke. Luke 24. Go to Luke 24, verse 44. Luke 24, verse 44. Look at what Jesus says. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Everything, he says in, in the Psalms, lo, I come through the volume of the book. When he gave his first sort of mini sermonette, he said, search the scriptures and see, don't they speak about me? And they wanted to throw him off a cliff. They wanted to throw eternal life off of a cliff. He said, this is what I was telling you when I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled. But look at verse 45. This is the most beautiful part. See, this is the reason why it's not the smartest, it's not the strongest, it's not the noble, but it's those who are chosen by Christ. Look at verse 45. He said, then 
opened he, it didn't say he opened the book, he opened the scroll. No, Christ has the power to open understanding. He said, then he opened their minds, their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Why? Because I'm going to prepare a place. I'm not going to be here in my, phys- in my physical body, but you have the word of foundation. You have the scriptures which we have today. He opened their mind to understand God's word, him. That's why we are a foundational church built on the word of God. Look at verse 46. And he said unto them, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are the witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry here in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with dunamis, power on high. After a meal with the risen Lord, after I had had a chance to handle and touch him, you couldn't tell me nothing. I mean, what are you, uh, like, if you, this is the reason why the apostles were so bold. What do you have to fear if you've already seen death defeated? A whip, a lash? Don't make me laugh. My Lord has defeated death and he gave me the promise. And if he can rise from the dead, he can raise me. This is why John can say, and we have seen it and bear witness and show it unto you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested unto us. Not just the apostles, but those who are saved, those who are chosen. We who are saved all have the Holy Spirit of God. That same Holy Spirit that hovered above the waters in the beginning of creation is the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And it is that same Holy Spirit that endows the disciples of Christ with power to preach the gospel, to endure hardness, to persevere until the end. And it is the same Holy Spirit that transformed us from that gospel unto salvation. And that gospel unto salvation brings eternal life in him. This is why John says, I think John was so excited he just started writing a letter. Like, look, this is, this is what I heard. This is what I've seen. Let me tell you about it. This is Jesus. We live because we have the fullness of the manifestation of life, not just spirit, not just flesh, but both in some mysterious way that God has raised Jesus. And I like 1 Corinthians where it says that we will have a glorious body like his glorious body. Not just a transformation of the heart, not some disembodied spiritual existence, not some hokey-dokey 
uh, understanding of what heaven is, but it's going to be an actual place. And we will have eternal life in him. Let us thank God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we bless you. We ask for comfort in the certainty of scripture. We ask that you might help us continue to fall upon our faces and give you all glory and honor because you are justly due. We have eternal life in the Son, Jesus Christ. We have a seal of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you might continue to fill our knowledge so that we may be able to live this out in wisdom. We see that we can be bold, we can be plain, we can be sure because we have the chief cornerstone. We have a sure foundation. Christ is that foundation. We thank you. We love you. We honor you because of what you have revealed, not just in miracles, not just in uh, gifts of the spirit, but you have revealed it in and by and through your word. Thank you for your word because in them is life because you are the manifestation of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.